Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? I am well, thank you. Happy New Year, Phil, and Happy New Year, everyone. How are you doing? Yeah, I mustn't grumble. Good, good. So, uh, I assume... We had a nice, I know you had a nice Christmas because we went out for a long walk and, and had a, a, a good chat. Um, but today we're going to talk about retail because we've obviously coming out of the Christmas period, we get lots of retail updates and absolutely dozens of retail retailers have uh, have reported or trading updates in the last couple of weeks. Um, and we're going to talk about your fantasy sip, which has done extremely well uh, over 2019. And we're going to talk about your new uh, UK quality portfolio. Mm-hmm. Shall we start with the fantasy sip? Okay, because this is something you put together. When was that? Just before the end of two thousand and eighteen. Well, this was this was my sip. This was actually a proper portfolio. So you owned all these companies? No, because obviously I made some changes over the last twelve months when it's been set up in fantasy form. Um, um, but this was, I would say, that the twenty-one shares in there. 16 of them were still in there now, were, were part of the portfolio. Well, you must be gutted that you don't own them anymore because this portfolio has done extremely well. It's cost me a lot of money. Yeah, yeah sorry about that, Phil. It's, uh, you know, the rules are rules and rules all that. Are rules, rules are rules. I'm very happy to accept those rules. Yeah. Why, why incidentally? Am I happy to accept yeah, those why? rules? Yeah, why? Because I think when you are a writer about companies um but you can look at this you can look at this two ways you can say it's actually better from the reader's perspective for the writer to have some skin in the game yeah skin in the game is always the argument for yeah. writers should own shares yeah and then you can have another view where actually it is better to for the writer to be emotionally detached and impartial and I prefer that. Yeah, there were actually one of the the great editors of the Investors Chronicle, Howard Wincott. That that was always his view. He edited the Investors Chronicle for a very long time. That was his view. I mean, I will say it, it has been compensated somewhat last year. I mean, from owning an S and P five hundred exchange traded fund, which done pretty well. And, that, and that's what we, uh, as writers on the IC, have to do. Yeah, we we we, we have to go down the sort of fund route, whether that's passives or open-ended funds or investment trusts, which is what, what what most of our team do. Yeah, and I knew all that before I joined. Indeed. So the decision is not something that's been, well, you could, you know, that's what, that was the deal. It wasn't forced upon me, but that was, the, that was the deal. And I accepted that, but I kept the portfolio running and uh, we've turned it into uh, part of my weekly roundup. Phil Oakley's Fantasy Sip, which did 31% in 2019. Yeah. And you benchmark that against lots of the other sort of funds that are taking a similar approach. Yeah, so I'm sort of based, you know, very simply buying very good companies that can grow. Um, valuation is a consideration, but a, a probably a third consideration to the first two points. What's often known in the trade as the sort of quality investing approach, or has become known as the Quality investing approach, it's what I wrote my book about. Um, And so I am essentially trying to eat my own cooking in terms of what I write about on a regular basis. So so that obviously means that you're then benchmarking yourself against 
some managers who take similar approaches like Terry Smith at uh, Fundsmith or Nick Train at, uh, at Lindsay Train? Yeah, a couple of investment trusts. Um, so there's a Scottish mortgage one, there's a Midwind one. Scottish mortgage quality? It's more a sort of growthy approach. Yeah, it, really? but it's, it's been a very good fund to own. Yeah, and, I, and a lot of our readers do. Yeah. I think it's the most popular investment uh, trust amongst their readership. There's like a Martin Curry Global Portfolio. Uh, which is again is very and the the blue whale one as well, which is what fifteen eighteen months old now. That fund's quite young, but it's, mm-hmm. it's that's a good fund. And then I uh, and it's compared against um, you know an S and P S and P five hundred ETF from the FTSE All Share because I do it does own American shares. Uh, one of my one of the things I encourage, and I know it's something that you and I talk a lot about and hopefully we will do a lot more of in the magazine is encouraging people to cast their nest their nets wider and not just look at uk companies but look at um there are some wonderful companies listed on on the us stock exchange well we, we did actually ask the question on this podcast you know should we be looking more at overseas companies and and i got some feedback and the answer is yes yes we should and we will hopefully. Uh, and you know the results of the Fantasy Sip in 2019 suggests that it's it's definitely something that's worth in, uh, readers, investors doing. Uh, although having said that, the best performing share of 2019 in the Fantasy Sip was also the best performing share in our tips of the year. Yeah, the London Stock Exchange. Yeah, yeah. I think let's let's be frank here. There's a bit of luck, there's been a bit of luck involved here. Don't get me wrong. I I think the London Stock Exchange has got some fabulous characteristics in that. There is a, you know, they are incredibly difficult to compete against. And on top of that, you've got the theme of data um, with the FTSE Russell indices business. And obviously, the more passive investing you get, the more these exchanges are benchmarked against and the fees that you can take from them. Mm. And data, you know, it's a theme that I I warm to as a as a long term theme that, that that data is um gonna just just gonna become more valuable and companies that can take data and turn it into useful information for their customers I think are gonna continue to do well and I think the LSE is a play on that and also the it's sort of you know quasi monopoly type thing you may not like that but. Um, and I think that's only going to get better with this refinitive deal or Thomson Reuters in, in old money. Um, I think that deal will come through hopefully in the middle of this year. And it's going to be going to be good news for London Stock Exchange. I saw a very interesting article by, I think it was John Authors, uh, Bloomberg, um, who said it was mentioning a, drew my attention to, a, I forget the name of the fund, but but the fund bought a port, built a portfolio along the stock exchanges or the great you know so or the data providers so LSE MSCI S&P and it absolutely trounced the trounced the stock market and i think because of this immense power that they have got now, if you're a customer of these companies, you don't like it very much. But if you're a shareholder, you do. Having said that, you know we are seeing, and you know the this data 
these indices are powering a lot of the uh, development of ETFs that we're seeing. Yeah. And we've seen some data in the last week or so that's showing exactly the, 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 the huge amount of money that's flowing into ETFs. I mean, it's absolutely vast. So, yeah. so you know, they are piggybacking that trend. And while, it, while that going is good, you know, the, the ETF providers, the, 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 the product developers, they're not going to complain too much. Not, not, not at the moment. I think, I think there, is a, there is a danger that they, the exchange providers push it a bit too much. I do wonder. Um, my understanding is one of the biggest costs of, of, of running an ETF is actually the cost of the benchmark that you're indexing against. Yeah, I, mean, I have a little bit of sort of experience and knowledge of this from my previous employment. Um, and, you know, exchange rate, exchange fees are some of the annual price increases that can can go on eye-watering. We, we see it here because obviously we buy in a lot of data yeah. and we, we provide some data through the website, through the, you know, investorschronicle.co.uk. Uh, and yeah, I mean, data, data costs, it's expensive. We spend a huge amount of money on this. Yeah. Um, so you can see why. And there isn't a... It translates into a good business for the LSE and, and, yeah. and, and people like that. Um, but yeah, it, 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 we question it every year. We're kind of stuck but with where's, it though. But you know, from a, I was thinking, you know, one of the best ways to understand a business is to be a customer of it. So, as a customer of the data, you know that there isn't a lot of choice. We we we're stuck. There's nothing we can do. Yeah, but I do wonder whether things will change. I mean, you do have some people that are trying to develop sort of fringe indices. You know, bats, um, I think bats, bats being yeah, yeah the obvious yeah. one. We've looked at that, but no one knows it. It's a branding thing as much as anything. Yeah, it's it's the power power of of brand and and you know network effect almost now because everybody uses it. The more people that use it, the more significant, the more relative, the more uh, valuable it becomes. So, so the LSE remains a pretty big chunk of the uh, the fantasy sip. Yeah, six six point four percent. Yeah, um, as you mentioned, your alpha report. What else? What else have we got in there that you, uh, you, you, you has done well this year and you're still confident in? Avon Rubber. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, this is a business I've 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 liked for a long time, not a long time, but for for a while or so, because I think it's it's got some great great characteristics, and one of the one of the things I look for in really good businesses which makes them extremely profitable is that they are they are problem solvers they solve a problem for somebody or something else and avon's big business is is its protection business so it's it, its biggest thing is like um breathing apparatus masks for the US department of defense and that is not an easy business to compete against because obviously the department of defense have strict criteria not everyone can just sell in so you have to be sort of a an approved supplier and avon has been very very good at working its uh, relationship with the uh, department of defense and developing new products over the years to keep on selling to them and it's branched out into selling stuff to police, fire departments, mainly in America. And it's done incredibly well. Um, Spends a lot of money 
on research and development, developing new products, and it's just a very, very well-run business. And what's getting people excited is that it's bought a business from 3M, which is like a sort of ballistics business, which gets involved with all the sort of protection matters there. That's not going to start contributing to profits um, probably until sometime this year. The scope is, you know, we talked a couple of podcasts ago about acquisitions, about how companies that become really successful with acquisitions are the one that have got a good underlying business as well. They're not using acquisitions to solve or mask a weak underlying business. They use it to turbocharge something that's already good. And I see Avon very much in this kind of uh, kind of mould. Has the sort of feel of Halma, which we talked about then, yeah, which which is still four point eight percent of the uh, yeah. fantasy SIP. Again, Halma has into this sort of protect protection analysis, very sort of again problem solving, almost sort of company critical or business critical type products and services, um, where there's a lot of trust. And a lot of a lot of long term relationships in these businesses are very difficult to compete against. And the interesting thing about about Avon Rubber is that you know you see it as a as a as a re rating story on its valuation as well. And you know it went from being sort of mid to late teens price earnings multiple PE, and we're now into the mid twenties. But we've seen Halma. Um, go into sort of the early 30s on, on a PE basis. Well, you've got Spirex Psycho Engineering there, which, yeah. which is a similar yeah. sort of story, and, yeah. and they're, they're rated even more expensively. Yeah. So, so, is, 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 the, the rate, so I guess what we're saying is a high rating, or might appear to be a high rating, isn't necessarily the end of that, that re-rating story. I, I don't think you own it for solely for re-rating. You have to have the earnings growth as well. And if it re-rates, great. But I think this whole whole thing of buying very good companies, because these companies are scarce, um, and this is not a view, this is actually backed up by, by looking at the evidence. Um, history tells you, and I'm not saying history will repeat, but you can pay what might seem as very high multiples of earnings initially for these businesses, but over the long haul, you know, five, ten years plus, they can develop into outstanding investments. And that that's the hope. Yeah. And you know, you've got some companies in here that um you know, you might you might sort of question um the quality of the, the competitive position. You know, companies like Sage, for example, or Croda, which didn't have a particular I mean Sage was okay. Croda didn't have a great year. Say you worry about the competition from someone like Intuit. Maybe. I I'd be frank, you know. Say I'm keeping Sage because I think it's got it's got some good intellectual property there, which either it's going to make good on, or someone else might come and do it for them. Um, you know, it's not massive. It's not a mega cap business. I mean, it's in the FTSE hundred, but it's not that massive a mouthful for someone to come and do something with it. I mean, it's probably... Is it the biggest tech company in the UK? That would be Ocado now, possibly. Yeah. Tech company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... We don't have a lot of tech in the UK. Yeah, I mean, from. I mean, Sage 
it's had a few, you know, it's had a few difficult years. But you know, the shares were at twenty seven percent last year. Yeah, not I mean, not bad at all. If I was gonna buy, if you were saying to me which company would I rather own, or you know, if, if I look at, I mean, I can only be impressed by QuickBooks. QuickBooks to me. Which is the Intuit product? Mm, it's a great product, and they have it. I mean, they're marketing it heavily oh, in the UK, and it just looks so easy to use. I've had a look at Sage, you know, a few years ago, and I was doing some accounting courses, and I just found it really difficult to get to grips with. I thought this is really quite hard. It's like you needed to know uh, almost like a different kind of language. Now, I've not looked at it since too. You know, I've not looked at it as in depth since then. I've looked at the company, obviously. And, I, and I've looked at its product, and they are getting better. Say, and this is this uh, Sage are. I think they get this because they have to get it. Because if you look at QuickBooks, it just seems so easy for the user to, and they and they get that message across. You see some of the adverts mm, on the telly. You just think, yeah, this is great. I don't quite get that with Sage, but I think. They're going to, I think they'll get there. I mean, say, say my understanding is, my wife is a, an accountant, yep. is the choice of the, the kind of small accountancy so, practice in, you know, the regions. And there were lots of them because there were lots of small companies. But yeah, it, it requires some expertise to get to get to grips with it. It's a real, it's a skill. But I think the other, I think, I suppose the, to defend Sage, it's like sort of the old argument about, you know, like Microsoft Office. You know, it's, if you have Sage, deeply embedded within your financial systems are you going to rip it out and replace it with quickbooks i guess quickbooks may be for the the new entrepreneurs the people yeah. who are setting up businesses now yeah uh, but you know that that's a position that is perhaps not as easily defended as someone like halma or avon or yeah. who who knows we'll see but i think you know sage is still a play on a theme it's a scarce asset it's a problem solving business mm. It's it's it does have a significant competitor, but it's still doing all right. And um, there's issues there, but I'm I'm prepared to sit this one out all right. because I think what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to load this portfolio with American American companies. I wanted some UK companies in it when when it became a fantasy because from our readers' perspective. I just didn't want to have a pure US fund. Should, should, we, uh, should we, on that note, should we move on to the UK? Yeah. The UK portfolio. Yeah. Um, now, Avon Rubber is a big constituent, in fact, the biggest constituent of that. Croda, which we haven't yet talked about, which was the worst performing company in the fantasy sip, is in there too. Yeah. So, so I mean, we talked about Avon. Talk through the rationale behind the new UK quality portfolio. The difficulties you've faced in putting it together, and, and and why someone like Croda, which has had a difficult year, well, not an appalling year, still features in that. Yeah. So my my sort of whole basis around this kind of approach is that one of the ways to win with an individual stock portfolio is cutting out the bad stuff. You try and focus on on good businesses that are going to be resilient over a business cycle you know with the ups and downs of the economy because if you look at long one of the things that determine long-term performance not just earnings growth of a business so it's it's avoiding losers and one of the best ways to avoid losers is to buy shares of good businesses 
This is difficult in, in the UK, in my opinion, because the selection of really good businesses on offer, I think, is quite small. But but even on top of that, the businesses that are very good are very richly priced. And so trying to adopt this kind of investment approach, you have to accept that you are going to have to pay up. But as I've just said, um, the evidence suggests that paying up for good stuff that can grow pays off. Yeah, absolutely. and I think you know, just just if you just look at that in the context of a real fund, uh, and one of the best, you know, probably the best UK quality focus fund over the last five six years is the the uh, UK Buffetology Fund run by Keith Ashworth Lord. It's got another good year in in twenty nineteen, and um, he, you know he he adopts this approach. He's written a, a book called Invest in the Best, and um, this this is this has proven to be you know a very successful strategy for him. I know he has started buying some American companies in that fund, but it's still largely a UK fund, and um, it, it's proven that if you do buy really good businesses, even if they, the, the prices are high, if they are delivering, they can they can make for good investment returns. Now, the question of delivering, related to your last bit, last part of the question, to Crowder. Um, yeah, Crowder is, is having a bit of a tough time in terms of it, its, its ability to grow. Um, I still think this is part and parcel of long-term investing in companies that you will get. Companies that you own will go through patches. You obviously hope that they don't, but they will go through patches where things get a bit tough. And, you know, profits are not collapsing at Crowder. They're just struggling to grow. Um, but the fundamentals of their business, I think, are still still very good. And it still fits into that problem-solving uh, definition that you talk about qualities quality companies having. I mean, it, it does, you know, has specific advantages in specific niches, skincare, crop protection that that are hard to replicate. Absolutely, yeah. But it's still in your UK portfolio, and in fact, your fantasy sip as well. They're going to get through this little tough patch, in your opinion. That's the hope. Management might help them through that. Good management, and that's something that actually they have very much in common. I would hope, with uh, Games Workshop, which you've written about in your magazine column this week, which, uh, as you say, is, is a story about good management and a touch of operational gearing. A touch. A touch. A, a substantial amount of operational gearing. Shed load of it. <laughs> um, you know, taking advantage of that is about good management. I, I, I'm a big fan of companies that are well-managed. Um, hard to, to kind of ascertain that in uh, when you're looking at a company, but... Uh, especially when you're trying to predict how management are going to shape a company in the future. But Games Workshop have, have kind of, it's a case study in good management. It is. I think the difficult bit with Games Workshop, obviously it's very wise with hindsight to see this. I think you, know, you look back at maybe 2014, 2015, this, this looked like a company that had lost its way. And, um, you know, its customers were unhappy. The business, the profits were stagnating, the sales were stagnating, and someone just come in 
and almost like they've flicked a switch. And this this company now is you know, in a real sweet spot. It has you know it has a strategy and a and a business model and a business makeup that is just making lots of money. But you know there, this operational gearing where the increases in profits are higher than the increases in sales can work in reverse. And this is the this is the, for me the big and un, big unknown with Games Workshop in that everything looks really good at the moment, and I totally accept the view that there's a huge amount of potential still on on Warhammer, uh, which is its main fantasy game. Uh, you know, engaging over the internet, the commu- building the community, and getting these licensing deals to take the intellectual property into things like PC games, mobile apps, television programs. But royalty profits have, I mean, they've uh, risen they've, tenfold yes. in, what, five years? Yeah, and they're, they're still going up. And there's, you know, there's the potential here to, you know, to have really, really big royalty. And these are virtually pure profit. Yeah. And what you've got, though, is you've got a very high fixed cost base in the business, anyway, so, so this is this is the cost of running the shops, the cost of factories producing the yeah designing the staff, the you know the plant in Wakuni, the the manufacturing plant, the warehouses, that kind of thing. But the marginal cost of producing an extra figure and selling it is or is is tiny. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know you see in that in the results, you know they're they're, they're going to put their half year results out. I think next Tuesday. And you know, based on the on the trading statement they gave in November, it looks like all the increase in turnover is dropping through to increase in profit. Now, the company is gearing up the business for growth, so it's added more manufacturing capacity. You've got new manufacturing capacity that's just coming on stream or just come on stream. Which is great if you fill it. If they fill this manufacturing, they utilize this capacity, then the profits of this business could be materially higher than they are now in five years' time. Mm. The issue is is that by adding more overhead, you make the business even more operationally geared. And if you look at the history of Games Workshop, it has been quite a volatile revenue business. And so you have to sort of buy into the view that this is a secular growth story here. When you say a volatile revenue business, I, th- I think the thing that you mentioned in the piece, which I, I, I must admit for what I had to cut out because we had to cut a few words, but I, uh, actually will be in the online version, um, is that it was kind of based around the release of new products. Yeah. So so how are they overcoming that? Yeah, it's it's about it's about increasing the range of products, the frequency of products, um, the pricing, new customers, and I, I think one of the things you mentioned in the piece that management did to broaden the appeal of Games Workshop was to actually kind of simplify a lot of what it was doing in terms of the game, the games, yes. the, the entry level products, the ability to play the games with the figures that it's producing. Yes, so they so they simplified the Warhammer, they put a new release out, simplified the rules, made it easy for people to get up and running. And then they they um, developed something called WarhammerCommunity.com, which is a community website. And this has been a phenomenal success in customer engagement. 
And I mean, I you know, you say you cut out my article. I, mean, I didn't cut much out. It was but, just but, a, a tiny bit of paragraph. I'm not being, <laughs> I'm, not being I'm not being critical. I could have written a lot more on this. And what 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 fascinates me about it, and you know, it's an ongoing learning thing. And I was speaking to somebody yesterday, you know, who's got relations in the industry about it with another company, and it's it's getting behind the sort of the insight into the customer base, and it's this, you know. This is a great example of a company re-engaging re and growing the engagement with its customers. And I still think there's a long way to go on this. I mean, I'm looking at some of the numbers, uh, particularly in terms of revenues here. And uh, I mean, it's very well diversified geographically. Uh, America, obviously the biggest market, as you would expect. UK, Europe, pretty strong. Asia looks tiny. Yeah. And that could be huge. It could be, but I, I have a bit of a concern about intellectual property businesses going into certain <laughs> parts of Asia yeah. and, and, and keeping the keeping the integrity of it. You know, if you're looking at miniatures, if you're trying to sell high margin, highly priced miniatures, you want to be tread very carefully in countries where perhaps the patents and designs on them are not respected as well as they are back home. Mm, I think Donald Trump would have something to say about you know, that. He's had lots to say this week, but you know, we won't go into that. And it's a common, it's a common fear amongst many businesses that are selling these bespoke, high-margin products. Maybe you know, not just figurines. You know, it applies to engineering businesses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And their their biggest fear is you know a cheap cheap copy. But this is part. I mean, this is part. I mean, going into much broader territory. This is part of the the kind of trade spat that is going on between the US and China is about intellectual property yeah. and intellectual property protection. So if that gets resolved in a way that's satisfactory to to the West, then then potentially it does change the, uh, the shift the dial again for someone like Games Workshop. Yeah, and it, Games Workshop is an intellectual property business. That's what it is. Mm. I know it sounds a bit jargonistic, you know. Some people say it's a toy soldier's business, but but which it is in some ways, but it's much more than that. Really interesting article to write, actually. really enjoyed writing it. Oh, I like this company. It's a fa fascinating business. I, and a great, some, there's some great, as I say, you know, I, I, the title of the article is a case study in sound management and operational gearing. I mean, it's just some... When it is online, I had to chop it in the, <laughs> chop it in the mag as well because yeah. we were running out of space. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Phil. But yeah, so it's, uh, it's a company I, I, I continue to like. There are risks there. There's things to keep an eye on. and. There's more, more, in, more in the article to read on that. Well, there's a lot in the article to read on that. A fascinating business that I have loved since I was a child because I used to buy these things yeah. and uh, paint them badly, as I think I've mentioned on this podcast before. Um, what I do buy now a lot of, or I would like to, is uh, vegan steak slices. Uh, but unfortunately, when I went for lunch yesterday to try and get one, the queue for Greg's at St Paul's was around the bloody block. Yeah. This is a business also in the UK quality portfolio. It's updated uh, with some figures this week. I mean, it's just it's just incredible what's going on here. Yeah, I, I mean, they have just... There's two things going on here from a revenue basis. Um, one is the move, you know, this growing growth in you know meat-free products. I don't, I don't, is that really such a substantial part of their business? Or is it no. PR, is it PR? No, but it's incremental. It's it's great PR. I think well, that's what it really is. It isn't it, it there's I'm not trying to dismiss that at all. It is a significant part of it. Yeah. But it 
But what it's done is it's given Greg's, you know, which used to be synonymous with sausage rolls and Cornish pasties and that kind of thing, to re-engage with a growing customer base and for people to know what fantastic value for money this company offers. That is why I think there is a huge queue uh, at Greg's at lunchtime in the city, because I think people especially after Christmas, having spent a load of money. Although, as we will come on to shortly when we talk about retail, not as much as the, uh, the retail industry would have liked, I think people are looking for value for money. Go to Pret-a-Manger, go to some of the other food places up in London. It's extraordinarily expensive. Yeah. And this is no secret with Greg's. You know, listeners and readers who've, who know Greg's either as a customer or a shareholder, this company has offered fabulous value for money for, for, ever since it, it started. Not very fashionable, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, there is not, yeah, when you go to lunch in London, not down, this, not down this neck. Of the you know, there is a bit of a there you, is a bit of a sort of fashion. You go to Newcastle and Sheffield, yeah. and Manchester, and people people tell you about. Yeah, Greg's. but when you're in London, you know, you want to be ju- you're judged by the your food bag you're going back to in the office with. Oh. Greg's was never very fashionable. I'll be very happy to have a Greg's bag. Absolutely, but then, well, people increasingly are, but, because it's becoming sort of a fashionable story, and I think the PR around the vegan steak slice and sausage roll, is helping that. It's helping, but it's not just, this is not just a, a story about meat-free products. No. There's been a lot of, there's an ongoing improvement in the underlying quality of the business here in that they are they are continuing to move the shops away from high streets where fewer people are visiting into places where more people are going, like railway stations, Airports, service stations, university campuses, hospitals. A bit like WH Smith. I was going to say just exactly that, which is also in the, the UK quality yeah. portfolio and the fantasy sieve. Yeah. And so you've just got a nice nice business here with two just, you know, very easy to identify growth drivers. There's a bit of issue on there's a bit of issue about short term cost pressure. Um with pork. Yeah, staffing. Yeah, business rates, that kind yeah. of thing. This company's been very adept at uh, managing them over the years, and um, I think there's still a long way to go on this one. Yeah, no, I would tend to agree. Uh, we've moved it to a hold at the magazine. Fair enough. Run you, run you winners, they they say. <laughs> it's a view. Yeah, uh, it's, it's. I mean, it's a really interesting looking uh, portfolio, and I'll leave listeners to. Get on to Alpha and have a look at this. It's uh, it's a lot of companies that you just look at and like. Yes, and actually, the you know that's quite interesting because this, the this, the cover feature this week is about going out there and actually putting in some uh, shoe leather and and looking at companies and uh, visiting them like Greg's and seeing if you if you like what you see. Um, and actually, a lot of these companies fall into that category. I would hope that not all of them, but a lot of them would fall into the category that they are quite easy to understand what quite, they do and, and and to get involved with i mean yeah. not Groda, not spirex but smiths and uh hollywood bowl and right move yeah all the companies you can see exactly what they're up to yeah as a customer should we talk briefly about uk retail it's been a very busy week for uk retail greg's obviously had some good numbers what else have we seen this week so we've had we've had a very mixed bag we had the brc the british retail consortium this morning uh, this morning saying it's been the the worst year for retail in 25 years i think it's the first wasn't the first decline in retail sales for 25 since 1995 extraordinary yeah and obviously it's creating seems to be creating more losers than winners 
and we've had a lot of a lot of trading updates and it paints a very very clear picture as to what's what's really going on out there and how tough it is for a lot of high street high street names and also you know the supermarkets um all the supermarkets have come out now and and basically there's there's no revenue growth. It's, it was a pretty shocking year for the supermarkets generally. I think Tesco was probably the pick of the bunch. Really, I mean, Tesco. It was. It was, it was fairly. It was fairly pedestrian. Only just getting it into positive territory, really. But um, I mean, Sainsbury struggled. Morrison struggled. Sainsbury's did okay on food. It's Argos that's dragged it back. Was the retail story? Yeah, and I think Sainsbury's got a big problem now with Argos because it's. The cost savings of that business have seemed to uh, uh, either they've run out or they're going to run out pretty pretty quickly. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know how that business grows its profits really, which is why it was so desperate to merge with ASDA. Yeah, well, but, I mean, it's hard to see where Sainsbury's goes from there. I don't think we've heard anything from them which which has given any clarity on what they do next. I don't. Yeah, this is this this is a business you know like Marks and Spencer. Like I would say, John Lewis, which is not not quoted, but has released um, some financial news this morning. These businesses are in a very very difficult position. So we saw John Lewis, um, which is it's a bit of a UK bellwether in respect of sort of general merchandise sales, light for light sales down two percent. Yeah, and profits falling a long way. Uh, Waitrose doing okay. As you'd expect, but I mean, still flattish, it's, yeah. just up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Marks and Spencer's non food down 1.7% on a life for life basis, food doing 1.4% growth. So, yeah, I mean, but this is a much smaller business. These businesses have come to a point in the road where some very, if they've not been had already, some very serious questions need are going to have to be addressed well Marks and Spencer we had, an, we had an update recently it was Capital Markets Day and you know it became very clear that a lot of the progress they'd promised just hadn't materialised and so now everyone is looking saying okay so what so what is going to happen now and every update doesn't seem to bring anything I, I just don't, you just don't know whether this business this business can be fixed at all I mean the even on the food side they seem to have bet a significant amount of money with this this venture with Ocado I've even seen, you know, talk of people even beginning to suggest that Marks and Spencers may try and buy out Ocado's UK grocery full stop. Well, how would it pay for that? Another rights to, issue? Another rights issue, yeah. <laughs> or or it divests, you know, it divests clothing or just it split, gets, splits itself up. Yes, breaks itself up, raises equity or whatever. And I'm not even sure that's going to work because let's face it, Cardo's hardly making huge amounts of money itself, and no one's no one's making a lot of money from uh, from online grocery. But there, there have been some bright spots, and uh, I think one of the continued bright spots in uh, in UK retail, and we've seen that this morning, is Dunnell. Yes, and um, they had a good year last year, and they're up against quite tough comparisons and they seem to be doing well again so here we've got like for like sales growth of five percent gross margin up 110 basis points but but the, the qualification is most of the growth is coming online that's all right you know growth is growth is growth yeah but you know you would think that the online business 
you know, providing they get the logistics side of it and they again it's all about capacity utilization, keeps keeps the profits. Um what you don't want and you're not really the stores business is actually still doing well. This is what makes you comfortable. It's not like Next, for example, where the online seems to be taking sales from the stores. And, and everyone, I mean, Next had some numbers end of last week, um, or last week at some point. People were generally impressed with Next Update. I wasn't. Well, you might not, but you're a hard, you're a hard man to impress, Phil. I mean, um, this, but this is, this, is, this is the mentality that we've got into with retail, where it's people have moved away from looking at the direction of figures in absolute terms and actually asking themselves whether it was better or worse than what is expect was expected. And yes, you know, next full price sales performance was okay. But it's but there's no profits growth in this business. And the only way that earnings per share are really growing is via share buybacks. Mm. Now that's better than nothing, but it's not high quality earnings growth. And just re- so what what seems to be the the current theme is obviously the online business is doing well and the stores are losing sales. Dunelm seems to be at the moment in a position where both it's online and its stores are still growing but let's face it Dunhelm is coming from a long way back on online. You know, a few years not so long ago this business had a really negligible online business so it's not really a surprise. Also made a very Hit and miss acquisition in this area, uh, world stores didn't, yeah. didn't really work. No, um, so everything went a bit wrong, and now it's as you say a question of recovery. And I think it has benefited from you know the woes of businesses like Homebase, for example, which which got itself into a mess and mm-hmm. scaled scaled back. There's no doubt in my view that uh, Dunelm has, has has taken some business there. I mean, one of the things we have seen from a lot of the retailers recently are complaints over the business rate environment. It's obviously one of the big, bigger costs of, uh, of, of being a retailer that you, you alluded to earlier. We've got a budget coming up in March. Do you think they're going to get any help from the government here? I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> um, but it's, there's no doubt that there's a lot of understandable requests to level the playing field up between bricks and mortar and and the internet. Yeah, I mean the internet, I mean obviously the the company that dominates online sales is is Amazon. In your pool for in your fantasy sip, mm. the great company. Um I mean it's it's uh it's it's hurting. It's hurting the high street and it's hurting, you know, as as a competitor to some of the online guys as well. Sainsbury's bought Argos to defend against Amazon. Amazon might go into food retail. You know, if if uh, if the government does actually have any any intention of, of of helping its its own companies, you know, respond to the threat of Amazon, you know, it's got to, it's got to do some of their business rates. They are it's not a a good environment. No, but it's it's something that has to be um, handled very carefully. If you've seen what's been going on in France, where the French government have been trying to slap sales based tax oh yes yes on uh, you know the likes of google and so on um that's what people are asking for on you know the likes of amazon in the uk why not just cut why not just do some business rate relief for for for, for bricks and mortar businesses you don't have to ta- tax amazon anymore there's some relief for uh, for, for store based businesses 
Who knows? They need they need it. It's it's not going to get fixed quickly. It needs needs something bold, because it doesn't take a genius to look at you know these figures that have come out this week and the figures that have been coming out for a long time now. Things aren't really getting better here, and you know, somebody pointed out in you know on Twitter to me today. You know this 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 is a sector that employs a lot of people. Yeah. You know, it pays a lot of wages. It pays a lot of tax. We are a nation of shopkeepers. Yeah, it's not just you know, but it's supply chains, logistics companies, and it's the, you know the associated businesses around the high street that feed off all this activity. Well, I'd be Greg, Greg's is or not. I mean, you know, whatever you say about Greg's moving into airports and and you know hospitals and universities, it's still on the high street. It's on yeah. my high street. The high street needs to be there for it to to do well in those locations. I th- I think this needs a. I think government needs to look at this. But hey, hopefully they hopefully they will. Hopefully but, they, you will. know, it, if we look from an investing perspective, there are lean pickings in this sector. Yeah, you found a few though. I mean, you got Smiths. We mentioned was not necessarily a UK story. Not anymore. a high street story. Not a high street story. J- JD Sports. Um, yeah, a bit more of a high street story. Although yeah, possibly more of a high large street, Westfield inter- style shopping centre story. Yeah, international expansion story as well. Yeah, yeah, JD Sports. Dunelm's doing okay. W. H. Smith on the on the sort of travel retail. I suppose you can bring SSP into that as well to consider people having a look at. But yeah, it's it's not easy. No, absolutely. All right, thank you very much, Phil. We're uh, we're nearing the end of our uh, our allotted time in the studio. So uh, anyway, that's that's great. We covered a huge amount of ground there. Uh, as it happens, let me just talk you uh, through what we've got in the rest of the magazine. As I say, lots and lots of uh, updates from from retailers. Um, we've got some really interesting news this week. Aston Martin, Jesus, <laughs> Phil's putting a face. Uh, Phil, you, you, I mean, you called this before it even came to market. That this was an accident waiting to happen. All the signs were there. The signs were there. We say it every week, nearly, uh, and the signs were there, and it's 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 now. Well, got itself in an even bigger hole than it was in before. Still been able to raise money though, hasn't it? Yeah, because it. Yeah, but at what price? At I what cost? I, I mean, it's it's, it's eyeball well, you'd price rather, is paying here. If you were to own any, you'd rather own the, the probably rather own the debt than the equity. But Absolutely, you sleep well eating, owning either. I think. Absolutely, the lead story this week in the magazine is Serious Minerals, which is the uh, well, it's kind of potash producer or pot, hopefully potash producing mine uh, up somewhere in in, in Yorkshire, which. Says come to a head, couldn't couldn't raise the money through expensive debt even. Uh, and Anglo American has stepped in there to, uh, to kind of take it out. Uh, what a lot of readers I know are saying is a very lowball price. Not sure what the alternative there might be might be worse. Uh, but have a read of that. We have uh, a look at the oil market. Mark Robinson has written about what is potentially going to happen to the oil, oil price uh, as a result of the uh, the developments in the Middle East and the assassination of uh, of, a, of a leading Iranian political figure there. Um, lots of the personal finance and fun section, which they will talk about tomorrow. Algie Hall has gone through uh, the tips of the week from 2019 and talks about... It's actually been an extraordinary performance given how many tips we write, which suggests that some of the changes we've made to how we come up with tip ideas are working and Algie explains exactly what they are what effect they've had and, and how we're going to be developing those in the new year John Barron has updated on his uh, investment trust portfolio and how that's performed in 2019 uh, very well and as I say the cover feature uh, how to be a share sleuth looks at actually getting out there 
experiencing companies and, and using that as, as another weapon in your, your arsenal of, uh, of company analysis to put alongside the kind of numerical analysis that you do. He's looked actually in detail at J.D. Weatherspoon and gone out there, talked to uh, suppliers, customers, publicans, anybody in the supply chain. And so what, what, uh, what's known as the scuttlebutt method. Yeah, it's uh, a great piece. It is a great piece. And, and, and it kind of, it's really, because you wrote about J.D. Weatherspoon, Phil, uh, from the sort of, the, the numbers side of things. And this really, it's a really great complementary piece to that. Uh, just goes to show there's value, many different ways you can look at companies. This is great. Have a look. Anyway, thank you, Phil. Thank you all for listening. Uh, happy New Year to everyone. Pick up the magazine, All Good News Agents, as I say, how to be a share sleuth, why private investors need to be private investigators. And we will be back again next week. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.